Thank you, preacher. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles, please, to the book of Luke tonight. The book of Luke. We're going to be in the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 23. While you're turning to your scriptures, let me just give you a little hypothetical. Now, I can't say with authority that this happened exactly like that, but you can imagine sometime in the city of Jerusalem, a husband and a wife waiting for the coming of their new baby boy. They've been praying for this baby. They've been asking the Lord to bless. They've been excitedly decorating a nursery somewhere, getting ready to have their first or second or third child. They don't know which one. The baby is born and they have all those visions in their head, all those dreams that this is going to be sometime a member of the Sanhedrin. He's going to be a soldier in the uh, Israeli army. He's going to be someone that's going to lead the children of Israel out of some oppression of the Romans. And they have all these dreams as they hold their baby boy in their arms, just like every parent has dreams when they hold their child in their arms for the first time. As he begins to grow up, though, he starts to get in a little bit of trouble. He starts to, uh, starts to, call, so, to break a couple of rules. And his parents keep getting called in. Messages come home from school. And some parents understand this, that he's been a little bit of a trouble today in school. And mom and dad find themselves making trips to the school every single week and talking to the principal and talking to the teachers. And over and over they say the same thing. Well, we'll take care of him. He'll do better. Uh, we'll, we'll sit down and have a good old talking to uh, talk. Uh, talk to him about it and things improve for just a little while but it's not long before all of a sudden they're being called back in and called back in and called back in. As he gets a little older no longer the problems with the school now he's got problems with the law. That's usually a progression that takes place. Now they're constantly going to talk to magistrates and they're talking to leaders of the legal authority there in the city of Jerusalem. And they're saying over and over, listen, give us one more chance. He's really down deep in his soul. He's really a good boy. He really does try hard. We really know that down there, what you see on the outside is the rebellious side of him. But we know that down deep, he's a, a good kid. And we'd like for you to give him just one more chance. And over and over he continues to break law after law after law until finally everybody at the courthouse knows mom and dad by name. Can you imagine though the day that that mom and dad who had such high hopes and such dreams for their son stand there in a courtroom and one more time give an impassioned plea to a judge and say, listen, we know what he's done is so bad. We know that it deserves all kinds of punishment. And we know you've been lenient time and time again in the past. But if you'll just give him one more chance, just one more opportunity, we'll keep him under our thumb. We'll, we'll control him. We'll straighten him out. Just give him one more chance. But can you imagine that day when the gavel goes down and the judge says, listen, there's no more leniency. There's no more second chances. Your son's crimes are so grievous. And as he sentenced their little boy to death by crucifixion, the most punishing, the most painful uh, capital punishment ever designed by any government, designed by Alexander the Great to punish those that thought about rebelling against his leadership. Can you imagine the weeping of mom and dad as they watch their son being taken away? He's going to be locked up for a few days. 
be mistreated by the Roman soldiers, and then they'll lead him out to be crucified. On that day, you can imagine people have gathered. Our thief is going to be crucified today. Our thief is going to be nailed to a cross today. They open up the doors of the prison to let him out, and they hand him a cross. Now imagine in the crowd there, yes, mom and dad are weeping, but no one else is weeping. As he walks out and they hand him his cross, they begin to hear the shop owners that he's robbed and the people that he's mistreated and the people that he's beaten up and the people that he's done evil things to as they've gathered to see the recompense that this young man in their mind deserves for the crimes that he's committed. And they, they begin to cry out, it's about time they got you. It's about time you're paying for your crimes. I remember what you did to my son. I remember what you did to my store. I remember what you did to my house and to my neighborhood. And it's about time somebody finally punished you. It's about time the long arm of the law caught up with you. Remember this, of course. Our thief is not a Christian. He's not even a good man. He's by no stretch a moral man. He does not sit there and smile and graciously accept their criticism. He begins to curse and swear with every foul word that he knows, cursing like a drunken sailor to these people. He looks at them and says, listen, if they'd let me go again, I'd rob your store again. If they'd let me go right now, I'd beat up your son again. And he starts cursing at them and they start cursing at him as the howling mob begins to scream for justice to be done to this thief. They hand him two pieces of wood fashioned together that form a cross. On the top of that cross is what's called a placard. Now the placard for crucifixion listed on top of it the crimes that had been committed against the government that resulted in capital punishment or crucifixion. There on the top of his cross is a long list of laws that he's broken, crimes that he's committed. After it calms down for a moment, the doors open again and out comes a second thief. The people begin to be energized when they see him. They begin to cry out the same things. It's about time that the long arm of the law caught you. It's about time somebody's going to punish you for what you've done to my family and my house and my business and my neighborhood. You've been a terror since you were a little boy. It's about time somebody got you. You deserve to be crucified. And he looks at them with hatred in his eyes. And he curses and he swears and he promises vengeance on every one of them. After a while, they hand him his cross and on top is a, another placard with a long list of crimes. And the two thieves, you can imagine as they look at each other, they look on the top of each other's cross and they realize that they are, above all other things, kindred spirits. They've committed some of the same crimes against some of the same people and now they're going to face the same punishment. After it calms down, the door opens a third time. There are no shouts, just an, a gasp over the entire crowd. Oh, everybody in the crowd hates the person that just walked out, but the trouble is he doesn't look like a person anymore. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 says, He hath no form nor comeliness. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 said, His visage was marred, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. 
as he walks out after being beaten with a cat of nine tails with more stripes than we could number. Oh, I hear preachers all the time saying he was beaten with 39 stripes of a cat of nine tails, 351 stripes on his back. Listen, the 40 stripes save one is Jewish law. It is not Roman law. There was no limitation to what these Romans could do to the back of our Savior. And he walks out with his face bludgeoned with a crown of thorns in his head, blood streaming down his face, a back completely covered with scars and scabs and open wounds as they've wrapped the purple robe around him and fallen down on his face and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And after a few moments of covering the children's eyes so they don't see this hideous creature that has just walked out, the crowd becomes even more energized. Oh, he said he was the Christ. He said he was the Son of God. This is what you deserve for blasphemy. They hand him his cross. On top of his cross, it just says this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There are no robberies listed there. There's no crimes listed there. He does not look at the crowd as they scream and yell at him. Because as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He does not look at them with hatred in his eyes. He looks at them with the love that has brought him from heaven to die on an old rugged cross. The crowd cheers as they finally are going to crucify this rabble rouser. They lead them up the hill. He, bearing his cross, came to the place of Golgotha. They've dug three deep holes. This is how crucifixion would work. They've dug three deep holes. The crosses are going to be set down in those holes. But I want you to think about something for just a moment. Everybody, all the, all the balcony and everything, think about this. What they're going to do is come to our thief. And the Roman soldiers are going to lay him down on this cross. First, let me ask you this. How many soldiers, how many men would it take to hold you down motionless on a cross that they're going to nail you to? Do you think one or two Roman soldiers were able to do that? Or do you think it took five or seven to hold our thief down, to hold his shoulders flat, to hold him so that he could not move? How many do you think it took to hold him in one place? Imagine as they came with their spikes to nail his hand to the cross. Gentlemen, let me just ask the men for just a moment. How many men would it take to hold your hands so motionless that they could drive a spike through it. Just one guy? You think one guy would be able to hold your hand so that you wouldn't move it and couldn't twist your wrist and move it out of the way? Imagine there's one with his knee on the elbow of our thief. There's another holding down his fingers. There's another pulling apart his thumb and his pinky so that they can nail him to the cross. Imagine, if you will, just for a moment, the cries from our thief as the spike splits the skin of his hand and begins to pound as they drive it inch by inch by inch into that cross. Do you think he looked at them and said, thank you very much, fellas, I appreciate it. Or do you think he cursed and he swore and he said every vile word he'd ever heard in his mouth? He described those Roman soldiers in the most disgusting and graphic ways as they nailed his hand to the cross. Then they all moved to the other side and nailed his other hand to the cross. But then imagine what it would take. 
How many men, how many soldiers would it take to hold, even though your hands are motionless, to hold your legs together so that one giant spike can go through both of your feet at the same time? How many men would it take to make sure your legs aren't going to move as they drive the spike through? How many soldiers would have to be standing there? How many would have to be kneeling on you, holding you down at your waist, holding everything down so that you couldn't move? How many men would it take to do that? And can you imagine the screeches and cries of pain as that spike splits the skin of his feet? Imagine as you hear the small bones in his feet as they shatter with the force of each blow. They come to the second cross and everyone stands around holding his hands, holding his feet as he squirms and fights for a last little breath of freedom before his life is going to come to an end. They come to the third cross all the soldiers lining up, all the soldiers ready to step in and hold him down. But then they're shocked and completely amazed as they stand there over his cross and he just lays his hand there. Remember what he had said? No man taketh my life. I lay it down. Can you imagine what that would have done to a Roman soldier after nailing the two thieves to the cross to see Jesus lying there of his own volition, holding out his hands for them to nail him to that cross? They drive the spikes through his hands. He does not curse them. He does not blaspheme at all. He does not say a negative word to one of those Roman soldiers as they nail him to that cross. What they would do then is pick the cross up with the man hanging on it. They would come to our thief. They would lift his cross up. And at that moment, they were going to drop it. And it would drop several feet and hit the ground and jar. It is said that people's bones would be broken and knocked out of joint just from the force of the cross now hitting the ground. Remember, their hands and feet cannot help them absorb the shock anymore. The, the cross would hit the ground. Can you imagine our thief as they hold him sadistically over the hole? Can you hear him say, hey, guys, come on. Just set me down easy. Just don't drop me. As they drop him into the coal, they come to the other thief and they do the same thing. Then they come to our Savior, the man on that middle cross, and they drop him down so that the Bible says, all of my bones are out of joint. Every bone in his body now out of joint. There is not one single follicle of his body, not one cell that isn't in complete agonizing pain now. As the three of them hang there, we find a conversation takes place. We find our thief that we've watched throughout his entire life, just through our introductory comments this evening. We watch as something happens. They hang there for hours. As the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15 that the thieves that were hanged uh, cast the same in his teeth. They spoke the same insults. They looked at him and said the same thing. They looked at him and mocked him. Isn't it funny? It strikes me as funny every time I read the account that these men with these long list of crimes on top of their cross are sitting there, hanging there on that cross, mocking another man on another cross who hasn't committed any crimes. After hours, we find this one specific conversation. We mentioned it briefly on Sunday morning. 
But I want you to notice Luke chapter 23, we're going to be reading in verse 39. The Bible says this, And one of the malefactors which were rang, hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou are in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I want to ask you a question, just one question tonight. We will not be long, I promise. Just one question. Do you know what the thief knew? This man is hanging on a cross. This man is guilty of crimes. This man is getting what he deserved. At the end of this day, this man will be dead. Nothing is going to change that. But tonight, I want to ask you this question. Do you know what the thief knew? Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Father, I pray that you bless the message tonight. I pray that you'll work in hearts. I pray that you'll have your will and your way. Father, there are those in this auditorium that do not know your Son as their personal Savior. I pray that you'll help them as they listen, that you'll remove distractions, that, Father, you'll cause us to be able to let the Word of God find fertile soil in hearts. Father, for Christians tonight, I ask that you help us to realize what we're reading when we read this passage of Scripture. Father, have your will and your way in our hearts. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice the first thing the thief knew is the thief knew he was doomed. In all of the history of Roman crucifixions, never had someone that was nailed to a cross been taken down off of that cross. There was only one person in all of Rome that could do that. It was not the governor once someone had been condemned. It was not any kind of magistrate. Only Caesar himself, only the emperor of Rome himself could order for someone to be taken down off of a cross. The truth is, when this young man woke up this morning, when this thief got out of bed that day from the cot that he was living in, in his cell, he knew there was one thing on his list of things to do. And this is what it was. He was going to die. There is no hope. There is no silver lining. There is no bright cloud over his head. At the end of this day, they will take his lifeless body. They will pry those spikes out of his hand and his feet, and they'll take his lifeless body down and submit him to be buried. He is going to die. He knows he's going to die. He knows that he is doomed. And the reason he knows he's doomed is because he's committed a crime. He's broken the law. He has committed a crime against the Roman government. Can I say something to every person in this room? Every person in this room started their life just as doomed as this thief is. Not because you've broken a crime against some government, but because you've broken a crime against the holy God. I mentioned to the young people today, no one had to teach you how to sin. You were born knowing how to sin. I remember when my daughter was only about four or five months of age. Now, when you have a four or five month old little girl, you think she is pretty much as perfect as they come. 
Now, we all know this. Every parent in the room knows that babies cry different ways. There is that hungry cry. There is that fussy cry. There is that rebellious cry. There is, though, that cry of pain or fear that you hear from your child. No parent ignores the cry of fear or pain. We always respond to that. I was teaching in a Christian school and preaching revivals every night. And so I would get up in the morning before my daughter woke up. And many times I would get home from church after my daughter was asleep. And so sometimes the only time I saw her was when she woke up in the middle of the night. And so I got up with her in the middle of the night. Every time she got up and my wife were here, she would verify that. I remember laying there and Charity was about four months of age, and I have the baby monitor on my nightstand, and all of a sudden, I hear that hurt, that scared, that painful cry coming from my daughter's bedroom. Had it been the hungry cry, it wasn't time to eat. Had it been the fussy cry, I might have just rolled over and gone back to sleep. But no one ignores that painful cry, that hurt cry, that scared cry. So I jumped up out of bed. I ran across the house. I opened up the door to her room. I reached there on the left and I turned on the light switch expecting to see my daughter in some kind of dire straits. When I turned on the light, she opened up her eyes and she looked at me and she went, <laughs> She knew that if she cried, the fussy cry wasn't coming. But she knew if she cried the painful cry, the scared cry, Daddy would come running. My daughter, who wasn't in pain, cried as if she were in pain. Do you know what my four-month-old, precious, little, sweet girl had done to me? She lied to me. I didn't teach her how to do that. No one had to demonstrate that to her. It came naturally. Sin comes Naturally, sin is what we are. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned. The verses we preached on this morning, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The fact is, the Bible tells us that there's none that doeth good. No, not one. The Bible is clear that every single one of us has broken a law. Oh, not the law of the United States of America or any other government around the world. We've broken the actual laws of Almighty God Himself, and we're just as doomed as this thief is. We're doomed because we have broken a law. We're doomed because we have been condemned, have we not? The wages of sin is death. It's just that clear. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's our condemnation. We have been condemned. The thief woke up that morning. He knew he was doomed. He knew his life was coming to an end by the end of this day. He knew he was doomed because he'd committed a crime. If he had any question, all he had to do was look up and see the placard on top of his cross. And by the way, if you have any question as to whether you're a sinner or not, all you got to do is pick up this book right here and it'll tell you for sure. He knew he was doomed. But there's something else here. I've had the privilege over the years of preaching in prisons and visiting people in prisons. And it is true that whenever you visit people in prison, they all say the same things. They all say, no matter what crime they've been uh, uh, convicted of, they'll say, well, I'm innocent. I had a bad, uh, bad attorney. Oh, there's a technicality here. I didn't really do anything wrong. I, I don't know that I've ever met someone serving in prison that just said, yeah, this is what I deserve. 
But could you imagine going through the worst punishment in the history of humankind as far as a government-sanctioned uh, capital punishment? Can you imagine going through that? Can you imagine the spikes in your hands and in your feet? Can you imagine hanging there on a cross and knowing you deserved it? I'm reminded of the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The Bible says, And the rich man died and was buried, and in hell lift up his eyes, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on my soul, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. You ever notice that the rich man doesn't say, I don't deserve to be here? You ever notice that he does not say, I had a bad defense attorney, or I got convicted on a technicality, or the eyewitness misidentified me? He doesn't say that. As he is there, burning in a literal lake that burns with fire and brimstone for all eternity, he does not say that he's innocent. He does not say he deserves to be released. He just says, I want a drop of water on my tongue. This thief on the cross... When the second thief begins after several hours of watching our Savior, the second thief says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. First off, excuse me, Mr. Thief, why would he get you down off a cross? You deserve to be there. Save thyself and us. But the other, don't you love this? Answering rebuked him, saying, no one else is doing that. No one else is standing at the foot of the cross defending our Savior. But this thief alone by himself with all the crowds jeering and all the soldiers mocking, this man says, Dost not thou fear God? Seeing they're in the same condemnation. And then watch what he says. And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward for our deeds. As he's hanging there on a cross, dying this vicious, vile death, you know what he has to say to himself? You know what he has to announce to everyone around? You know what he has to say to this other thief? This is what I deserve. With all your protestations, with all the times you've said, well, I don't want to be a Christian. I've known some bad Christians. Listen carefully. You may have known some bad Christians over the years, but you've never known a bad Christ. All of your arguments, well, I'm just as good as the next guy. If that guy's going to heaven, then I'm going too. Those church members, they lie and they're hypocrites. And if those church members are going to heaven, then that's where I'm going. Listen, you're not going to hell because of something someone else did. You're going to hell because you are a justly condemned sinner. This thief on the cross is not dying on the cross because of what the middleman did. He's dying because of what he did. And he has to actually admit, yep, I deserve this. I'm receiving the due reward for my deeds. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm here to tell you something. It is your choice as to where you spend eternity. The devil cannot make that choice for you. It is your choice as to where you spend eternity. But I will promise you there are only two, uh, two outcomes. One is heaven and one is hell. If you go to heaven, you will spend the rest of your eternity acknowledging that you don't deserve to be there. But if you go to hell, you will spend the rest of your eternity knowing you're getting exactly what you deserve. The thief knew he was doomed. He knew he was deserving. But he also knew he was desiring. 
Consider what he said to the Lord. I want you to notice the first thing he did. Obviously, he remembered his sin. We receive the due reward for our deeds. Secondly, he realized who Christ was. Think about what he says. He says, Dost not thou fear God? Who was it that told this thief that the man on the middle cross wasn't just a rabbi from Nazareth, wasn't just a great speaker, wasn't just a man that spoke like no man had ever spoken. He wasn't just those things. Who was it that told this middle thief, this thief on our side here, that the man on the middle cross is in fact Almighty God himself? Who was it that told him that? Is Simon Peter standing at the foot of the cross preaching that the Lord hath raised him up to be both Lord and Christ? No! Is the Apostle John passing out tracts? Are Andrew and James standing there witnessing to people and proclaiming their faith in Christ? No. Are the Roman soldiers saying to every man that this one hanging on the middle cross, although one soldier does it when he dies, are they all saying, well, this guy might be the Christ? Is anybody saying that this man on the middle Christ, a cross is God? No. How does he know that? What makes him say that in the first place? Let me point something out to you. This thief got to see something that most people never get to see. He got to see someone really living the Christian life. He got to see what a real Christian is supposed to be. Say, Brother Harper, wait a minute. You talking about lifestyle evangelism? Listen, lifestyle evangelism is a lie. You don't just run up to people and live in front of them, all right? I don't believe in lifestyle evangelism, but you understand this. I believe your lifestyle better do some evangelizing. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If they can't tell the difference between you and the world, Christian, then you're not living the right kind of life. He said, does not thou fear God? Seeing they're in the same condemnation, he realized his power. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But then watch what he said next. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Who told him that? Who told him that the one hanging on the middle cross has never committed a sin? He doesn't have a book in front of him that says that. He's not hearing a message that says that. He's hanging on a cross. He saw a man that loved his enemies. He saw a man that was weeping for those that despitefully used him. He saw what a Christian is supposed to be. And he said, this man, just knowing him for a couple of hours, I know he's never done anything wrong. I realize right now that he is not just powerful, but he's also perfect. He realized his power. He realized his perfection. But he also realized his position. Now, I want you to imagine the setting with me for just a moment. You have three men each of them nailed to a cross. Now watch very carefully this next statement. Each of them are doing physically the same thing. Each of them are dying. Each of them are bleeding to death. 
You know how crucifixion worked. As you hung there on that cross, you would lose, use your legs to push up so that you could fill your lungs up with air. And then you would slump back down when the pain would get so great in your legs. You would slump back down. And eventually, if nothing ever happened, it would take hours and hours and hours, but your lungs would literally fill up with your own blood. All three of these men are dying. No one is getting them down off of their respective crosses. But he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me, watch it, when thou comest into thy kingdom. Who told this man that the one on the middle cross wasn't just dying? He was dying and going to a kingdom. He wasn't just dying today. He's going to sit on a throne until he hath made all of his enemies his footstool. He's going to sit there with eyes as a flame of fire and feet as fine brass. See, the simple truth of it is, this man realized Jesus, who he was in his power and his perfection and his, and his position. He says, this man, I want him to take me. I want him to remember me when he goes to his kingdom. See, this thief doesn't have a kingdom. This thief over here, he doesn't have a kingdom. This thief is mocking and ridiculing, joining everybody else. But this thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realized he was doomed. He realized he was deserving. He realized he was desiring. But lastly, please, He's made this simple request. By the way, as far as prayers go, it's not that glamorous a prayer, isn't it? Is it? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He doesn't say, Lord, get me off the cross. He doesn't say, Lord, take me to heaven to live with you forever and ever. He doesn't say, Lord, if you get me down from here, I promise I'll do this and this and this and this for you. No, no, no. He just says, Lord, someday... When you're sitting on your throne in your kingdom and you're remembering back to this day when humanity took the lives, the life of the Son of God, I want you to just remember with all the people that mocked you and all the people that ridiculed you and made fun of you, I want you to remember there was one old thief, just one old thief that took up for you for just a little bit. That's not that big a request, is it? He realized he was doomed, deserving, desiring. And lastly, please, he realized he, was, he knew he was delivered. The Lord answers him. The Lord does not say, Verily I say unto thee, Someday I'm going to remember you. Someday I'll think about you when I'm sitting on my throne. That's not what he says. He said, Today. Shalt thou be with me in paradise. Remember when we started? We told you he had one thing on his list of things to do, didn't he? Just one. Die. That's it. Woke up that morning, wrote number one, die. Now number two, go with him. <laughs> go to a kingdom with him. He didn't ask for that. He didn't pray the perfect sinner's prayer. 
He did not say, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thou who hung the sun and the moon into the stars, thou who spoke to, uh, spoke to, uh, to, to, to Moses and led him out of the children. He didn't say any of that. Lord, just remember me. When you come to your kingdom, Jesus did exceedingly abundantly all that he would ask or think today. <laughs> Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Just a few hours after this, that the Lord cries with a loud voice and gives up the ghost, and he's gone. The Romans, as sadistic as they were, would get tired of watching someone die the slow and agonizing death of crucifixion. So what they would do is they would come along with a, a, a very large stick, very, very similar to what we would call a baseball bat today. And they would come and stand at the foot of the cross, and they would swing with all of their might and shatter the shin bones so that they could no longer push up anymore, so that death would come quicker. The agonizing death of drowning in your own blood would come faster. Can you imagine them coming to the thief over here? Can you hear him? Hey, please don't. Don't. I know I don't have much time left, but the, the emperor could get in touch with me. The emperor might have already dispatched a messenger to tell you to get me down off the cross. Just give me a little while. Just, just wait before you break my legs. Just don't do it right now. And you saw the Roman soldier swing with all of his might, and you heard the disgusting sound of those crunching bones as he slumped down, never to draw another full breath the rest of his few short hours of life. They come to the middle cross, <laughs> ready to break his legs, but the Bible had prophesied that not a bone of him would be broken. And they realize that he has already given up the ghost and commended his spirit into the hand of his father, and he's already gone. And they come to our third thief. Our third thief, who the song so richly describes, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. This thief who hung there on the cross and saw the blood of Christ witnessed his sacrificial death. <laughs> they walk up to him with that bat in their hand, and you can almost hear him as he looks down and says, Where have you guys been? He left a little while ago, and he told me that where he went, that's where I'm going. I'm leaving here. I'm going to paradise, so you guys swing as hard as you can. You're just going to hasten me seeing him. Now, look at me carefully. I want to remind you of a couple of things. This thief never got down off of a cross and got baptized. He didn't take communion. He didn't join a church. He never put a dollar in an offering plate. That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is a free gift given by Almighty God to me and to you just for the taking. Hey, Brother Harper, how do I get it? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I know what you're thinking. I really do know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that sounds way too easy because the world wants us to think that we have to earn something that could never be earned. It's a gift. And you're thinking, that sounds way too easy. Let me just take a moment and say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. That means I explained it right. If it sounds too easy, 
then you're understanding what a gift is. Do you know when you preach to four and five and six-year-olds, they don't have any problem at all understanding that salvation is a free gift, not paid for by your good deeds, but paid for by His blood shed on that old rugged cross. They understand how to take a gift. It's when we get older. It's when we become teenagers or become middle schoolers or become adults that we decide, boy, it can't be that simple. It must be something that I have to earn. It must be something that I have to work for. I must do a bunch of good deeds to get it. Have you ever noticed that no religion on the face of the earth, not one, that tells you that you can get to, good, uh, to heaven by doing good deeds? No religion tells you how many. They never give you a number. You can't say, well, I've committed 4,162 good deeds. That means I'm going to heaven. There is no number. There is only one belief system in the entire world that will give you the exact number of good deeds that you have to do to get to heaven. And here's what it is. It's Bible-believing Christianity because here is the number. It is zero. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. This old thief never did a thing for the Lord. He didn't pray the prayer in the exact right words that you and I would want him to say. Never sang a hymn. Never attended a Sunday school. But I can tell you where he's been for the last 2,000 years. Amen. I can tell you where he is right now. He didn't have a list of good deeds that he accomplished. As a matter of fact, he died deserving capital punishment. And yet he's walking on a street of gold. Amen. See, these three crosses teach us three things. This one teaches us something, doesn't it? It teaches us that you can come close to getting saved and not get saved. He saw Jesus die. He heard Jesus prayed for him. He saw the very blood of Christ. And 2,000 years later, he's still crying for a dip, a dip of water on his tongue because he's tormented and he's getting what he deserves. The middle cross shows us that if we live like a real Christian supposed to live, it'll make a difference in a lost and dying world. But the third cross tells us that no matter what kind of mess you've made of your life, and there is no way to describe this man's life except a mess. He's failed everybody in his life. He's disappointed every member of his family and his community. No matter what mess you've made of your life, the one on the middle cross still died for you. And he'll still forgive you. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know how much God meant that? He said it three times. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. All say the same thing. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not maybe. Not cross your fingers. Just trust and he'll save you. The last thief over here tells us that you might not get saved on your deathbed. 
You're going to put it off until the last moment and say, well, I'll call a preacher to come to the hospital to lead me to the Lord. Listen, it didn't happen for him. Why not trust him now? Say, Brother Harper, are you sure I need to get saved now? I watch what the Bible says. The Bible is pretty specific. Behold, today is the day of salvation. That's pretty specific, is it not? Especially you young people, you've had two opportunities today. Today is the day of salvation. But then the Bible gets even more specific than that. It says this, behold, now is the acceptable time. When? Now. You know what that means? It's real simple. It means now. Why not trust him tonight? Do you know what the thief knew? Because at the end of the story, the thief knew that if he died today, he was going to heaven. Do you know that tonight? Because if you don't, you can. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. No one looking around. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around.